everybody in their 20s is an asshole. Everyone who's ever been in their 20s is an asshole. You're never going to have that much hair again. You're never going to look better. You're never going to have better sex than you're having in your 20s. So you're going to be an asshole. Gen X was, were assholes in their 20s. Boomers were assholes in their 20s. The greatest generation were assholes in their 20s. Like, we all, that's just who we, that's what happens, right? right. Welcome to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores exceptional career success stories, inspiring and insightful personal brand journeys that answer the question, are you coffee or are you Starbucks? Fascinating conversations with leaders about their career breakthroughs from entertainment, tech, media, and more. You'll learn how they've turned up the volume on their brand to unlock success. Firsthand, uncensored, and real, as told by people who've been there and plenty of inspiration and practical tools to help you lead with your brand every day as you drive towards your next career breakthrough. And now, here's your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Hey everyone, Jason Patria here, and you are listening to the Lead With Your Brand podcast. This is the podcast to help you turn up the volume, show your value, and get to the next career breakthrough. If you're a first-time listener, thank you for joining us. If you are a fan of the show, make sure that you are subscribed, and go ahead and give us some feedback by rating and reviewing today's episode and the podcast. I am super excited for the guest that we have on today's show. It is Evan Shapiro, who is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning producer and someone that I am a super huge fan of his brand. Now, I wanted to talk to him because your brand is all about making consciously competent choices. Every single brand, whether it's a corporate brand or a consumer brand, but most importantly, your brand needs to stand for something and have an area of expertise. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Jason, I'm good at a whole bunch of things. And you know what? That is true. That's why you're an awesome person. That's why you are an awesome worker. That's why you're an awesome leader. But here's what we know. When you're trying to be a whole bunch of things, it's just confusing in the marketplace. So you've got to take a stand and have a point of view. Let's take an example. When you go and need to buy something at the store, right? If you're going out for essential shopping, you have a choice between going to Target or Walmart. And here's the thing. They're essentially the exact same thing. You can walk into a Walmart and Target and buy almost the identical products. But you know what? You are listening to me right now and you are saying, I am a Target person, or you're saying I'm a Walmart person, or you're saying I shop at both, but I know exactly when I shop at which one. Because ultimately, when we think about Walmart's clear area of expertise, their clear area of expertise is about giving you the lowest price anywhere. It's the lowest price anywhere. So if you want to save 20 cents on a bottle of Tide detergent, and that's most important to you right now, you're probably driving into that Walmart store because they're guaranteeing that they have the lowest price of anywhere else. 
On the flip side, if you're looking for cool clothes for your kids, if you're looking for some hot brands but at an affordable price, you're probably going to Target because Target's clear area of expertise is really designed within reach. How can they give you a cool, funky, fun experience that's about the brands that you love at an affordable price? So you know when you're going to be a Target person or you know when you're going to be a Walmart person because they have a point of view and they deliver on it every single day. So let me give you an example of that. If you are a CPG company and you're negotiating to put your product on those Walmart shelves, you know what? You might go to Bentonville, Arkansas, and I've been there, right? It's kind of like you fly into an airport and then you go through fields and like there's nothing there except for like the big Walmart headquarters, but you literally go in to negotiate with Walmart sitting on plastic folding chairs and tables in a room that looks like you're in a bunker with fluorescent lights because they're spending no money on making this a fun experience for behind-the-scenes businesses that are brokering with Walmart. They don't even serve food or beverage there. They're not whining and dining anyone because they're so committed to low prices that they're not wasting any of that money that is coming out of your pocket when you buy something. So think about that. When Lay's Potato Chips comes and they want to do a big contest and a program and in-store sampling, Walmart says, how much are you going to spend on that program? And Lay's says, hey, we're going to spend, you know, a couple hundred million dollars on that. They say, good, we'll take that and we're dividing that across so that we can make Lay's Potato Chips that much cheaper and we're not doing any in-store promo. Promo. At the flip side, you know the folks over at Target, they care about what the store looks like for you. They care that it's functional and fun. They care that you love their TV commercials. They care that you know who the target lady is at the holidays. And more importantly, they're working with brands to create affordable versions of those things that you love. So if you're looking at that $1,000 Coleman barbecue grill for the summer, you know what? Target's saying, how do we work with Coleman to take some of the bells and whistles off, but keep the best of the design to give our customers the most affordable but cool version of this brand. So when you think about your personal brand, you've got to have a point of view. You've got to have a mission and you've got to stand for something. More importantly, you've got to stand for something in terms of your everyday actions and behaviors. Now, that's why I love having Evan Shapiro here on the show today, because he embodies that as a producer and a media executive. Now, he has worked at major media companies, including being the president of National Lampoon. He ran CISO for NBC Universal and ran both IFC TV and Sundance TV for the AMC networks. Now he's produced amazing shows like Portlandia, Comedy Bang Bang, Trapped in the Closet, Bajillion Dollar Properties. And he's also a professor for TV and media at NYU Stern School of Business and for media studies at Fordham University. I'll be back in just a few moments with Evan Shapiro. For over 25 years, Jason has coached, trained, and developed thousands of leaders and executives, helping them achieve their next career breakthrough. He's a featured speaker at global conferences and companies to help everyone bring their best authentic self to work, show their value, 
and lead with their brand every day. Get more tips and tools at leadwithyourbrand.com. And we're back with the amazing Evan Shapiro. Evan, what's going on? Uh, you know, this and that. How are you? I'm spectacular. So let's let's dive right in, Evan. When you meet someone and they are not familiar with you, they don't know what you do, how do you explain to them who you are? Hmm, that's, a, that's a great question. And I and something I talk to students I work with all the time about you know, building your personal brand. So I, I really talk about two things. One, I, I consider myself a bit of a change agent. It's usually why someone's working with me is to create some sort of change. And then secondarily, I like to describe myself as a, a business person who helps artists with the business and an artist who helps business people with the art. Wow. So I love that you have almost this mission statement or this elevator pitch, right? And you talk about the balance of business and art. Say more about that. How did you come up with that? It's interesting. First of all, I, I, I've been focused on my personal brand for, for a number of years. And I know that kind of sounds, I don't know, douchey, but the, but the, but, but you have to be because your personal brand is, is what people think about you when you're not in the room. I mean, if you don't take control of it, it really affects the opportunities you get, the kind of frankly, everything about your career path and also to a certain extent, your personal path as well. So I came to New York City to write and direct. I dropped out of college, fancied myself a director and a writer. And during the day, I got a job working in nonprofit arts, first in dance and then in theater. And then at night and on weekends and, and for summer stock, I would go direct and write. I mean, I had those dual path careers for a number of years. Even as I kept becoming a little bit more incrementally successful in the industry, I was working in the theater industry. I worked for the producers of uh, the producers. I worked for the producers of Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera. Um, and then I, I eventually worked for great advertising agency exclusively in theater. And then when I was pretty young, George C. Wolfe, who's a, a pretty famous Tony Award winning director, a, a living landmark, as he likes to say, um, hired me to become the head of marketing for the public theater and the, the New York Shakespeare Festival, Shakespeare in the Park and the public theater downtown. And it really was an explosive moment in my career. It was an opportunity that I was lucky to get because I was not experienced enough to get it. He just took a liking to me and I ran with it. And I, and we did a lot of great work. The, the brand you see on the public theater and Shakespeare in the Park today is, is the brand I helped create with Paula Share from Pentagram a number of years ago. So that's, you know, that's 1994, 95 and 96. And it was just enormously successful to the point where, so we, I did The Tempest on Broadway, Patrick Stewart. I did Bring the Noise, Bring the Funk on Broadway. We won a bunch of Tony Awards, and my work was very recognized by people in the industry, which is a very close-knit, incestuous community. And a bunch of producers were asking me if I would go work for them individually, in-house. And then a couple of business partners and I got together and we decided, you know, rather than working for any one of them, we'll work for all of them. And we started an agency called Forefront, um, which was dedicated to entertainment marketing, primarily for live entertainment. And that summer, I was also, the same time I was founding this company, I had a six-month-old baby. And I was making, I was at the public theater. It was a great job, very high profile, but at the same time, it was not paying very well because it's a nonprofit organization. And so at the same time, I was going to forego my salary and open a, open an agency with a couple of partners at 27 years old. I also was supposed to go direct a show in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania for summer stock. And what became very clear is that I was not going to be able to do that. 
And at that point, it was very clear that that was also the end of my directing career because there was no way I was going to be able to partner on this company and start this company and take on clients. And we opened our business with rent, bringing the noise, bringing the funk, Grease on Broadway, Beauty and the Beast, all the big Broadway shows. And, and what that meant also was we were also going to be working on Chicago, which hadn't opened yet, and Lion King, which hadn't opened yet. And so there was just no way Disney and the Weisslers were going to were allow me to disappear for a month and, and keep them as clients. As I was telling my friend who ran the theater that I couldn't come direct this production of The Foreigner, and I was really screwing him by doing so, I hung up the phone and I was very upset because not only was I, was I affecting my friend's business, but I was also saying goodbye to my artistic career. And it was at that moment I promised myself that I would take all of the joy that I was getting out of the art and pour it into the business. I pour it into marketing. I pour it into the biz- running the business. I would get the same type type of artistic expression out of doing a spreadsheet that I would directing a play. And that's a retraining of your brain because I hate spreadsheets, and I and I and I hate you know I hate I hate a lot of the or I thought I hated a lot of the aspects of business that are necessary to get ahead in business by training myself to look at a spreadsheet or a PowerPoint presentation or a pitch. Um, or a marketing campaign the same way I would as a script or a play um, and treat them as art um, and bring that joy and that zhuzh to those <laughs> endeavors. And I said, and I promised myself, I'm going to get so good at this, it's going to lead me back to the art. And that's what happened. I, I did that. I dedicated myself to the business. We, we took off. We, at one point, at every Broadway show as a client, we moved into film. We moved into the first internet bubble. We did really well there. And then I moved over and, and went to the client side at Core TV and then kept rising at, in television marketing. And then I was given the head of a channel at IFC. And at that point, I was again producing. I was producing film, producing television, and the two things collided. And every day since then was a dedication to kind of that right brain, left brain dichotomy, which I describe as helping artists with business and helping business people with the art. And it's actually been every day since then a transition away from the business towards the art. So I still do the business, but more and my more and more of my day every day since then has been dedicated to the art. And the goal is to dedicate myself entirely or as much to the art as I possibly can for the rest of my my life. Absolutely. And I love that when we talk about career paths, right? In the old days, they used to talk about ladders, but this is really more of a journey. Evan, tell me a little bit more about that huge kind of breakthrough moment when you had to sort of say goodbye to directing, say goodbye to being, you know, a pure artist. What went into that decision making for you? Because I hear people talk about those transitions all of the time, and then they actually don't pull the trigger because they fear something, you know, what, what considerations went into that for you? That was a major life decision. I've had several since then that this was the first time I employed this, this mechanism that I tend to use now. And it's what I coach people to use when they have major career decisions or life decisions in front of them, which is, you know, I weighed it. I couldn't sleep. It was, you know, just starting a business at 27 years old with, and having no salary was just kind of an anathema to who I was. And it was a great deal of unknown and uncertainty. I had a six-month-old baby. Luckily, you know, I have a, a partner in life, my wife, who has been nothing but supportive of me every day, even when I'm a total crazy asshole. 
And we have both a set of both sets of parents who are very supportive and helpful and kind of helped us kind of protect ourselves and gives us safety net. So it was still, though, kind of nerve wracking to pull that trigger. And so what I do is when I have those types of life decisions in front of me, I lay in bed awake, staring at the ceiling, and I cl- then I close my eyes and I picture two tunnels. And I take a deep breath and I say to myself, on three, I'm just going to run down one of these tunnels. And I breathe. I saw myself, I visualized myself getting ready to run. And then I hit go, three, two, one, go. And I ran towards the business and away from the art because I, I somehow understood now that on the other side of the kind of dark precipice of the tunnel, there was a future that could lead me back to the art. And it really, that, that metaphysical kind of visualization, which I had never really done before in any way, shape or form was super eye-opening, like life-changing. And I, and I, and that's why that, that decision and that, that phone call with my friend, Ross Meyerson still feels like it just happened yesterday. And now every life decision since then, I use that kind of like theoretical visualization process to say, all right, like both are scary. Neither is certain. And there's upsides and downsides to both. And there really isn't a terrible decision here. So you have to just choose. And staying put is definitely a, a decision. Like I could have stayed at the public theater and kept directing on. And who knows, I might be a famous director right now, but that's not the choice I made. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, because, you know, when you were working over at CISO and we were at NBC Universal together, that was really my big kind of takeaway from you as an executive was the way you dressed, the way you carried yourself, the way you presented ideas, right? The way you coached and and developed folks was uniquely you and kind of not asking forgiveness for those things. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. And, and by the way, in that decision-making, there are definitely jobs and opportunities I have not gotten because of that. You know, whether it's my social media feed or the way I carry myself or the things I say out loud, or now the things I write on LinkedIn, you know, there are definitely people in this industry. It's not that they don't, it's not that they like or dislike me. That's a kind of subjective term. It's like, Ooh, he's a little dangerous. That was a decision I made a long time ago that I was going to be unapologetically me because at the end of the day, the last thing I wanted to do was wake up and regret not having said what I thought. And literally everything, and I say this to people all the time, especially people I coach, the the way I dress, the way I talk, the things I put on social media, the way I wear my hair, um, the decisions I make, they are all very, very conscious decisions. These are not, I don't do things haphazardly. I, it's not that I haven't in my life done kind of impulsive things. There's no question about that. But for many, many years now, since I decided that being a change agent was a big part of who I am, um, and that was at the help with a, of a coach, to be honest with you. I have been unapolog- unapologetic about the things, uh, about the elements of who I am and how I bake them into my brand. And it, it, it's a conscious des- decision. Again, there are, I, you know, there are reasons I'm not running a big television network. And one of them is I'm, I'm very, I'm very out there with my opinions on a number of different things that, you know, not necessarily every C-suite wants to, Sometimes they want me. They want me until, you know, it's, it's, it's too difficult. Um, but if you, but, but I've said to people over the last number of years, especially in the last 24 months is, you know, look at how many people are getting laid off right now. 
look at what's happening in this industry. Look at the disaster that is, you know, the television industry. And sometimes being careful and getting those big fancy jobs with all those perks is great until they walk in your your office and offer you a package to leave because there ain't no money left. And at that point, when you hit that ceiling, and I coach people who are young and just starting out in their careers, but I coach a lot of people my age and your age. And a lot of them or most of them come to me because um, they've hit a ceiling. They've been let go. They've been laid off. They can't get promoted. And nine times out of 10, it's because they don't have a personal brand. It's not that their personal brand is bad. It's that they're just a number. And, you know, when you look at uh, a company, you know, like the size of a Disney or a Fox or a Viacom or whatever, and they have to choose to let 800 people go, they're not going to let the people go whose brand are meaningfully valuable to their company. You know, they're going to let go of the people who don't stick out, frankly, more often than not. And that's, that's, a, that's a conscious decision. Everything I've needed to make a living have, has been born out of the brand I've built for myself. Like when you have an Evan Shapiro-sized job, you know who to call. <laughs> right? I mean, and it's all about we can't afford to be commodity workers, right? We just can't be the employee ID number, you've got to really stand for something. So, I mean, you talked about uh, maybe being sometimes controversial on social. So I love following you on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. And, you know, so many people come to me and they, they don't want to be on those platforms, right? Because they're fearful. Everything's uh, they hide it. They have like private accounts or they're just kind of voyeurs on things like LinkedIn. You know, what really strikes me about you, Evan, is you post content that gets strings of not just comments. It's really full on conversations, right? You're really curating thoughts and ideas. So what are some tips you have for folks about being authentic on social, right? Whether they have your point of view or not, but it's ultimately about engagement, not just posting, right? Well, there's difference between being authentic and marketing yourself. Those are two different things. You know, you'll note on Twitter and on LinkedIn, I really don't talk about my family. I don't talk about personal, like personal stuff. Like you're never going to hear I was sick. Like I got, I got COVID. Almost nobody knew that. So it was already gone. And I just don't, I don't, that's not what I use those for. They, Twitter and Twitter is really just politics now, but, but Twitter and, and, and LinkedIn are really just marketing platforms for me. I don't, I don't do them. I enjoy it and I enjoy the feedback loop. Um, so that's part of it. But LinkedIn is really, a, is expressly a marketing uh, tool for me. I put, I put out that content so that people come, think of me as a really smart, I can authentically write in my bio, Evan Shapiro is a thought leader in the media industry. And there's almost no one who is, knows who I am who wouldn't agree with that. They may not agree with my opinions, but, <laughs> but what, you, what you just said is clear. Like I get, I get a lot of traction on my LinkedIn page based on shit I say not about myself, right? Like I talk about the movie industry. I talk about whatever. And, and on Twitter, it's right now, and I've been very vocal about it over many, many years, since 2008, you know, it's all about politics because right now, if you're a human being in, in the world and you're not upset, 
then you're not a human being. Like you're you're just in the wrong race, the wrong species. Regardless of which side of the political spectrum you're on, like you should be upset right now. Um, so I use LinkedIn as a as a as a as a honey trap. Um, I put content up there that people want to engage in. That 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 you know. You know, the, the thing I wrote about Apple's bundling thing the other day or the thing I wrote about the mo- movie theaters just yesterday, both of those have been shared. Like, it's not just that people are having a conversation in the comments. Like, they actively say, you need to read this. And that's great marketing. And so what I tell people about, specifically about LinkedIn, is just pick a topic. Become a topic expert in something, anything. It can be just become a to- topic. I say to my young, uh, younger mentees and students, become an expert to- topic expert just on TikTok. Like if all you do is talk about TikTok on LinkedIn, you will get a shit ton of traction because it's a very important topic right now. And none of the grownups understand mm-hmm. it. And, you know, so there's a good example. I, I've become, I've been lucky enough to become topic, a topic expert in millennials and Gen Z in, you know, SVOD in diversity and inclusion, oddly, for a straight, white, cisgendered Jewish dude, about women, about women's issues in the workplace. Like, but these are things that I've been working on for a numb, like decades. And, <laughs> and so I can write authoritatively about them and have them be legitimate. I'm not, I'm not what I would call blackwashing. I'm not taking a position just to make myself feel better. I'm not virtue signaling. Um, and, um, but what I say is like, What's the topic that you're an expert in or can be an expert in? And then just post about that. And it doesn't have to be long treatises that like I write. It can just be five words of a contextual kind of introduction with a link. And as long as you're supplying good content on a regular basis, um, people will be attracted to you and your LinkedIn exposure will, will spread. And then when you're looking for a job, your network knows your value. You don't have to sell your value. It's a, it's a very similar thing, which I coach my younger mentees and my students on. In I give a lecture at my class. I teach at Fordham and NYU. And mid-semester on each one, I lecture about how to future-proof your career. And the first thing I say is, like, if you're in an interview and you're talking about yourself, you are losing. You're losing. It's not going to work. Because if you're 23 years old at this point in your life, you are a number. You don't have enough experience to, to, to really kind of compete against, you know, the pure numbers of human beings that you're competing against. You have to prove yourself special somehow and saying, I did this internship or I did that internship. Yeah. I mean, if you really are a kind of super monster and, and have done amazing things, maybe that will work for you. But walking in with an opinion that you can back up with research, going into the, the interview and talking about something that the other person cares about with new information and authority that is substantially more influential than saying, Oh, well, I, you know, I managed the, um, you know, uh, press releases as an intern at this press office, or, you know, I got a 3.8 on my GPA. Like there are a million people who got a 3.8 on their GPA. You know, it's the same thing I say about your LinkedIn profile or your resume, like just, Stop using gerunds, stop using bullet points, write sentences, write paragraphs, write English, <laughs> talk about things. Don't talk about yourself. Talk about the accomplishments that, you know, this is what we did at this company. That's a long answer, but I don't know if that's what you were looking for. No, I love that. And one of the things that I love about you is how much you are 
a teacher and a coach. So where does that come from in terms of being a professor and your, your drive to sort of help the next generation? You know, I think, you know, there's probably several different elements of that. Um, the first and foremost is I just enjoy the, well, okay, that's not true. I enjoy the, I enjoy, it's not the first one. It, it is true. I do enjoy the, the interaction. It's, you know, when you take those personality tests and, you know, you get significance as one of your most important personality traits, like that makes me feel significant. I'm leaving some kind of legacy. But the reason I started doing it was because I wanted to retrain my brain around the industry every year. And you can't teach a class in media and not have to relearn the industry every year. The second part of it is, you know, whether it's ghetto film school, which I've been associated with for 20 years and or teaching at NYU or mentoring or coaching, I, I, it is, it seems like it's an altruistic enterprise, but it is incredibly selfish. It teaches me about myself. It teaches me about the world. I learn things from the people I, I mentor and from the students I teach that I would not have learned otherwise because they are different from me. And I feel like, again, it's like that karmic exchange. The least I can do is teach them something while I'm sucking their blood. And, <laughs> and that's, that's, you know, that's would be the second thing. And then my mom was a teacher when I was very young. And, you know, it's always impressed upon me that the responsibility for a member of any society is to make that society better than how they found it. And the way I feel like I can improve upon the media, specifically the media ecosystem, is working with Ghetto Film School to diversify it, working with One Day Immersion, which is another nonprofit I work with, um, to diversify it and attract the best and brightest to it. And then lastly, to leave the media industry a bunch of well-trained new generation executives to take care of it. Yeah. So you work so much with millennials and now now Gen Zs. And I feel, you know, Gen Xers and baby boomers have plenty of complaints about millennials and, and Gen Zers. You know, what is your advice for old school people like us or old older people to get the best out of millennials and Gen Zers? Well, what do you, so you consider yourself Gen X? Yeah. I mean, I think we're the only generation that has legitimate complaints because we're the we're the teeniest generation. So we're squished between yeah, we're like squished. between boomers and millennials and Gen Zers who are all twice the size of, of Gen X. We've never had a president and it's very likely we'll never have a president. <laughs> it's all been boomers mm-hmm. up until now. And the next president after whoever these two old guys are is probably very likely to be a millennial. The thing I, I when I lecture about Gen Z and, and, and Gen Y is, you know, you treat them as a monolith at your own peril. These are the two most diverse American generations in history. Basically, almost 50% of Gen Z is something mm-hmm. other than white. And then when you kind of dig into it and you think, all right, so 30% or more is Latinx, you know, that's not a monolith because Cubans in Florida and Mexicans in, in California and Dominicans and Puerto Ricans in, in New York and Uruguayans and Hondurans and Ecuadorans are all very, 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 very different people. Just look at the voting records of Cubans in Dade County and Puerto Ricans in New York City. These are dramatically different human beings. And the Asian community is a comp- like, you know, Chinese and Korean and North Korean or South Korean, these are very diverse people. So when you think about these generations, you can't think about them as a monolith. If you treat them as a monolith, you you will lose. It, there is no question about it. So you can't 
you can't paint one with the brush of all of them. The second thing is like everybody in their 20s is an asshole. Everyone who's ever been in their 20s is an asshole. You're never going to have that much hair again. You're never going to look better. You're never going to have better sex than you're having in your 20s. So you're going to be an <laughs> asshole. Gen X was, were assholes in their 20s. Boomers were assholes in their 20s. The greatest generation were assholes in their 20s. Like we all, that's just who we, that's what happens, right? And so, you know, give them a break. And then the other thing I, I really do have to say, especially about millennials right now, is like, stop calling them kids. They're not. They're 40 years old. They have 60%, actually, it's probably closer to 70% now. So let's call it 65% of all parents of children under the mm -hmm. age of 18 are millennials. So they own, they are the business leaders, they are the parents, they are the teachers, the police people, the fire people, the doctors, the nurses, they are your accountant, they are, you know, more often, they're, they're a huge percentage of the workforce. And so, you know, treating them as children is just dumb and, and thinking they don't understand how the world works is even dumber. You know, the, the, uh, there's this great book called The Fourth Turning which outlines, I think you've seen me talk about this, that outlines um, generations, you know, since basically the round table, Western generations into categories, artist, hero, nomad, and prophet. Um, and the last hero generation was the greatest generation who were born into great privilege. And then the Great Depression happened. And then they were forced into service, literally, to fight fascism and save the world from itself, save problems or solve problems that they did not create. You know, look around you. Does that describe the millennial generation? Of course it does. We, they didn't fuck up the earth. They're not responsible for our shitty COVID response. They're not responsible for the earth being on fire right now. And yet they're going to be the ones, AOC and Katie Porter and, and Charlie Kirk, God bless his soul, and, and all these people are, are all going to be the ones who have to deal with these issues. It's not going to be the older people. I mean, as, as much as there's going to be a septuagenarian as our next president, regardless of who wins, it's really going to be, we all know this, the millennials in the trenches who are going to be dealing with the day-to-day -day bullshit to, to fix all this stuff. And Gen Z looks at the world and goes, you're telling me that, that the rules say that I should keep my mouth shut because you're in charge? How did that work out? There are 200,000 dead Americans. We're all wearing masks. We're all trapped in our house. The, the American, the United States is literally on fire right now, it, both literally and figuratively on fire right now. Like, I'm sorry, sit down, grandpa. And, and so like the, the things when, when, when people our generation or older complain about millennials or, or Gen Z, it is literally from a lack of information and a lack of self-awareness. And until you're prepared to own the mistakes that we, as people who have been running the planet for the last however many years made to get us to this shitty place that we're now in with a fascist in the White House and the world on fire, then you're really not in a place to be, you know, complaining about people who had nothing to do with where we are right now. You know, they literally didn't vote. So like, it's not our fault. Now they will. Believe me, I think you'll see that the midterm elections in 2018 was the highest turnout for people under the age of 30 since the 60s. And this next presidential election will have the highest turnout for people under 30, probably in the history of the, you know, going back probably 100 years. And they're awake now. And and you may not like AOC, but she represents substantially more people in this country than, frankly, even Nancy Pelosi. So be prepared for the change that's coming because we basically beckoned it in.
said from the change agent himself. Evan, just some quick final questions for you. Give me three words that describe the Evan Shapiro brand. Change, creativity, and I would hope generosity. That would be, that's what I try to put out there. I I hope that's my brand in the world. Um, You'd have to ask other people that. And if you were a type of car, what type of car would you be? Uh, It's my last three cars. So I have to say a Volvo, (laughs) which is, which is really weird because it is actually kind of quintessentially who I am because I come across as this kind of outgoing, racy, dangerous kind of brand in social media and in, and in the business world. But I've been married 30 years. I have two grown adult daughters. I have two dogs. I'm pretty much a homebody, you know, so it's a really nice Volvo, but it's, it's, (laughs) it's very, very, very useful. (laughs) What's the best career advice that you would like to give to the listeners of the show? Really chase your passion, chase your love. Um, doesn't mean you're going to, you know, if you love baseball, it doesn't mean you're going to get to play baseball, but it doesn't mean you can't have a job in baseball. You know, if you love the entertainment business, you may not get to be on camera or even behind camera, but it doesn't mean you can't have a place in the business. Um, you know, the world, especially the last two recessions, the one that we're in now and the one previously, I think have, have really taught the younger generations that working for a company 20 years who doesn't appreciate you doesn't get you very far. No one, no one wants great mid-level manager written on their tombstone. And so it, it, life is far too short to chase the almighty dollar and the title on your business card, because at the end of the day, both of those things can be taken away like that. And so if you haven't done things that you love with people you like for reasons that you care about over the course of your career, I guarantee you, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday you will regret it. Awesome. Well, Evan, thank you for sharing your passion and for being an amazing change agent. And we'll be back in just a few moments. Thank you. Are you tired of not being recognized for your work? Are you ready to rise above the rest and accelerate to the next level? The Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program will help you take control of your career, develop your own unique brand, and catapult you to a whole new level of success. You are a top performer, and the Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program is what you need to get you there. Visit leadwithyourbrand.com to learn how. And we're back. And I don't know about you, but my mind is blown talking to Evan Shapiro. He has so much energy and so many cool thoughts and ideas. And most importantly, so many great tips for us in terms of building our personal brand. I mean, think about what he talked about in terms of packaging yourself and showing up in terms of the way you look and present ideas, how you actually post on Twitter and LinkedIn and being really clear what's that what is that for? How do you showcase your expertise and become known for something? But you know what really stood out for me with Evan was our very first question. I asked him to say, how does he describe himself to people that he, who don't know him? And he was super clear in saying he is someone that helps business people understand artists and helps artists understand the business and is a change agent in that space. 
We have talked about this before. It's all about having that brand foundation that talks about your core belief, what your core promises, and what your brand position is. When you have done that work, you are able to come up with an elevator pitch that is engaging, that is provocative, and leads people to say, wow, tell me more. And that's exactly what you want your elevator pitch to be. You don't want this to be a rattle off of all of your jobs because you heard this from Evan quite clearly. There's a lot of us that do the same thing. We can't afford to be commodity workers. You've got to stand for something. You cannot be defined by your job title. Instead, let's be defined by the value that we bring and the superpowers that we employ. Well, I hope you've had a good time listening to the show today. I know that I have. If you like what you heard, make sure that you subscribe and give us a little bit of feedback by rating and reviewing the show. I would love to connect with you. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm at Jason Patria, and I share tons of tips, especially on LinkedIn, for you to lead with your brand to your next career breakthrough. Most importantly, in your career... Don't be coffee. Make sure that you are a super premium brand like Starbucks. You've been listening to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores and uncovers exceptional career success stories and inspiring personal brand journeys with your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at leadwithyourbrand.com.